This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hi, hi. What are we talking about today, Puka? We are continuing our trilogy of episodes about that tronkiest of supplements, Isle of the Mighty, by talking about book two, Scotland. So yeah, uh, if you haven't listened to it already, please listen to our first episode about England. Yeah, I think... I think a lot of the general comments we made in that episode will apply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in this one. I guess we're doing the book to Scotland has three chapters as well. And it's the same general structure of the previous with no, there's no intro fiction, but otherwise it's, you know, history and geography and people. So of Scotland this time instead of England. So last time we had a verbena from the U.S. giving a lecture to mostly changelings about the history of England, which was uneven, I think is the adjective that I can politely use. This time we have Paz McCallum, Seeley Knocker, as the lecturer here. And it's kind of, I don't know, how did you feel about this characterization of the narrator? Uh, yeah. It's kind of leaning in very hard to the drunken Scotsman stereotype. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna lean into a stereotype, at least lean into the the kith one, not the, uh, yeah. I think that's why they did it, though. It's like, oh, we'll make him a knocker so that we can get away with using lots of Scottish inflected vulgarity or something. <laughs> There's a lot more to knockers than just swearing, even yeah. in one e. But yeah. Anyway. It's amusing, but it makes it a little bit of a chore to kind of parse some of these sentences, I would say. Mm -hmm. In any case, I do have a notion. So something that we talked about last time, which is continued here, is that there are these sidebars that are tinted purple, which are kind of, again, they don't really correspond to the actual text that much. And this time we don't even have section header divisions in the text. So it's just a wall of talking, occasionally interrupted by these sidebars, which may or may not be at the appropriate point. I'm thinking the conceit is that actually, so we had talked about how the Verbena lecturer had had these transparencies. And I think the purple sidebars are supposed to actually be within the narration, kind of like what the mages are projecting onto the wall. Mm -hmm. So, because it seems like the knocker narrator here is like directly responding to the content of these yeah. sidebars. Yeah, I think that's definitely what's happening. I guess not having the headers helped. It made just, it make a little more sense, but... Yeah, I, I think it's just a side they didn't quite do the header thing right in the, fir in the first book. But again, it's like, if you're going to do that conceit, wouldn't the person lecturing on the history kind of want to talk about the stuff that's being projected uh, on the screen? Well, also, why are they doing it differently in chapter four than chapter one? Yeah. Anyway, so so that's something. That being said... There is a fair amount of interesting material kind of hidden in here. Something that I quite liked was occasionally there would be like Scotland-specific terminology. So, for example, apparently they call satyrs golochs, which, mm -hmm. okay, I'm into it. 
references to something called Pyrex. And I don't know if that's supposed to be another kith. You know, a secret kith kind of hidden in here. Yeah, I, ha- I have to admit, I'm fine. I can listen to lots of Scottish television movies, mm-hmm. whatever. That's just fine. But when you start trying to, like, emulate pronunciation and spelling. Yeah. I have a lot of trouble just getting through the, like, understanding what I'm reading in the text. It starts to more than listening to things. So I had some trouble with this chapter. Just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. In any case, we get some history about the Picts and Hadrian's Wall when the Romans came to Great Britain. There's references to, like, the technocracy being really huge in Scotland. And I I don't really know enough about Scotland and Scottish culture to, to say yes or no about that, but it just strikes me as a little bit out of nowhere. In terms of engineering and the history of engineering and the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. Scotland really actually played a big role, like in terms of Scottish people. Oh, for who, sure. Like, invented for sure. things and things like that. I think that might be part of it. Yeah. But. And later on, they do kind of give a breakdown of in the Industrial Revolution, like what each convention was up to in Scotland. But to say that, like, they've had kind of a, an iron grip on the entire country for the last 300 years. I don't know. I, yeah. I compare that with all the CCTV in London or, <laughs> you know, surveillance states in other parts of the world. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Scotland's yeah, I wouldn't say they have more of an iron grip than Concordia. Right, <laughs> right, like exactly. The U.S. is kind of famous for... Yeah. I've had to pick the two to be more technocratic. I don't think I'd pick Scotland. Yeah. So. Anyway, there's a lot of just kind of bouncing around. I, I do kind of like that the narrator here is bouncing around because it kind of has that flow of someone who's hung over and stumbling to get through a presentation. So mm-hmm. there's very similitude. That being said, it's kind of strange that you have like, oh, here's the history of the troll champion who vanquished the Picts. By the way, the technocracy are currently very big in Caledonia. Anyway, let's talk mm-hmm. about the rise of Christianity, you know? So that sort yep. of back and forthness got weird. Mm-hmm. So we have this story of the Scots arriving in Scotland because the Scots came over from Ireland, fun fact, Mm -hmm. and vanquishing the Picts in an enchanted drinking contest. We get these notes about the technocracy. We get information about the questing beast, who's one of my favorite beasts from folklore, and the story of, like, Merinita, and very little actual Scottish history before the year 1300 or so. I mean, okay, this is... I mean, part of this is this is a World of Darkness book written in the 1990s for sure that might be for the best because what they do have is kind of questionable in some parts of the real world history so it's true i will give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the picts because the archaeology around them i know has developed significantly in the last oh yeah five years so Mm -hmm. you know the information here is bare minimum and i get that but kind of like we saw with the england section there's notes about when the Romans arrived, when the Romans withdrew, native shamans, again, we have the word shaman. Which is funny because, like, Scotland's almost defined as the place the Romans didn't really go to. Right, exactly. And Ireland, too. But... Yeah, but at least Ireland's a separate island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's notes about Viking raids. There's an unseelie lord who rules the Isle of Skye for more than a millennium. Like, in the sidebars, there's all of these little pieces which are just not touched at all. And instead, it's like, let's talk about the questing beast for several paragraphs. I have the same level of confusion that I had with the England section with regards to the content of the text versus mm-hmm. the sidebars. 
That's really... Yeah. But people should know more about the questing beast. In Arthurian legend, there's, what's his name, Sir Pelinor, who chases after it nonstop. And I did like that it was kind of presented as a metaphor for ascension. That was kind Mm -hmm. of cool. But yeah, we have information about the Stone of Skun, which has since been returned to Scotland. Yep. Moments like that with the Stone of Skun, I wish there was more, because that has the right intersection of history, folklore, contemporary politics, culture, you know, yeah. it crosses over easily between the real world information one would need for running a game in Scotland and the supernaturally mm-hmm. tinged stuff that one would want. And, in. and it's a good sort of middle place between Changeling and Mage too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wish there was more stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And then we get into the shattering. Yeah. The interregnum, I guess. Oh, here they list the time period of the interregnum. I don't know if the England section did that. No, probably not. And this is where we actually do start seeing the historical historical stuff. So we've skipped Mm -hmm. over the Vikings and the Norse rulership to some extent. And we kind of get a brief mention that clans formed in the Highlands without much more background to that. But like William Wallace and Robert the Bruce is where it really starts to actually present these historical events. They have a real thing for Clan MacLeod, which I'm into it. I guess. Is that just a... Okay. It's not trying to be a Highlander reference. So. I imagine that's part of it because Highlander, the film, had like just come out, I think, when this book was oh, released. Okay. But they also have the fairy flag, which is like a famous artifact okay. or treasure if you look at it through changeling terms. They keep spelling it wrong, though, because <laughs> I think in in Gaelic it's the Bratachshi, and here it's the Brawlachshi. Something that I think is good to bear in mind here is that a lot of the folklore of Scotland, when it comes to the Fae, and a lot of the kiths that we see in Changeling, are outgrowths of Scottish traditions, and there are mm-hmm. so many, like. Every little corner of Scotland, it feels like, has its own particular myth about a very specific misshapen, mischievous creature who has its own name. And it's kind of cool to see little pieces of that come through. There's also an indicator that, at least in the context of Changeling, that the Highland Unseelie, I suppose, were responsible for the rise of the Changeling mythine because they were the ones abducting bairns. Mm-hmm. So that's something. Yeah, that's a thing that never really, in Changeling, that type of Changelings, like, there's talking about, like, replacing people, but it's often not really children it's talked about. And even the other Changeling game for, for yeah. Chronicles of Darkness doesn't really get into that. So, And this this book actually has fetches in a form. So we'll get to mm. that. Let's see, what else, what else? Then we get the Tudors and the succession issues surrounding James mm-hmm. and... Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a nice chunk of history if you want weird royal drama of two countries getting all tangled up. And who wouldn't? Yeah, I think this actually would be like useful for running a game in late 16th century Scotland. <laughs> yeah, because it, it does give a lot of context behind the tensions between the two. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit unclear to me with the clans sometimes it seems like there's mortal clans and fey clans or burgess clans as they call them run by commoners Mm. 
they seem yeah. to have kind of like the same name. And the implication, I suppose, is that there's kinane stuff going on, but it'll refer to like Clan McLeod and then Fairy Clan McLeod. It's like, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, like I get. Well, I mean, because like I guess change links. That that's an interesting implication, but I think they need to explain that more. Like, because yeah, I guess in their interregnum, it would make sense that there's a very strong family, at least in some places with commoners, a very strong family dynamic going on. Like, but that's how they're surviving. Yeah, but a bit more help on that would have been good. Yeah, or something like we get sort of a note that the religious tensions so for anyone who's not up on british history when elizabeth i died without an heir james the sixth of scotland was i guess set up to be the successor and became james the first of england but he was catholic and for the recently protestant reformed england that was a source of tension it then Mm -hmm. in this book says that that led to tension between the burgess clans of scotland but it doesn't really explain why like, I'm not really sure why the Catholic Scottish king going to take over the English throne would cause changelings to, like, get up in arms against each other. Yeah. Sure. There's a thing called the War of the Badge, where fake clans Venu and Urd clash over the right to wear the emblem of King Eolim, one of their ancient Shi heroes. And we get a lot about that <laughs> for some reason. And then it kind of zooms through the Jacobite Rebellion. There's actually, there's a note in the sidebar and it really pisses me off because it sounds amazing and i want more about it which is that in 1625 the hermetic robert langloch and 12 other british mages began to create kentigern an idolized realm filled with beasts and structures from british mythic ages a half year later work stops langloch and the others disappear kentigern also disappears and then 1626 Mages with alliances to Dwastep shut down movements in Horizon Realm to find Langloch and Kentigern. Maverick mages who attempt same later also disappear or are silenced. That seems like a really awesome story hook, and it's not mentioned anywhere else. Yeah, that that that's part of the uh, yeah ongoing one of the ongoing issues with this book. I know that's the one that I think aggravates me the most though, because I want a realm full of questing beasts and other bygones. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's in Horizon, Stronghold of Lost Hope. I'll have to take a look. Anyway, another throwaway line is, among those changelings was the famous outlaw Spat Thornconk and his rough band of roguish boggins. I'm sure you've heard tales. I haven't heard tales, but now I want to. I mean, having some throwaway stuff's fun. That's fine, but... I think the problem is that the throwaway stuff sounds so much more interesting to me than the stuff they're spending entire pages on. (laughs) Yeah. Like, a band of roguish boggins is more interesting to me than two fey clans fighting over the right to wear an emblem of a she's face. Mm-hmm. Like, In their interregnum, when there's no she. Right, exactly. Basically. Yeah. And then there's this weird, like, not exactly flashback where the chief of Clan MacLeod comes back because apparently at the time of the Shattering, he stood in for the troll lord and it was a mistaken identity thing and he and his lover ran away but then they came back and they found out 350 years had passed it's a very celtic fairy tale kind of story but it doesn't really have any bearing on anything else in this entire chapter that's the kind of thing that irritates me (laughs) so much space spent on things that i have no idea how i would actually use in a chronicle we do get more secret scottish kiths though there's the Brolichen, the Minches, the Bavanshi, 
and hey, Kispuk Dullahan connection, the Nukalavi. Is that where the where he got it from? Well, or, it's, no, it's I mean Scottish... it was in the thing. But yeah, right, yeah, it is a Scottish yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. The skinless and pestilent half man, half horse from the sea. Sounds accurate. Mm-hmm. So then we have information about Bonnie Prince Charlie. They at least mention Rob Roy as opposed to they called the Robin Hood of Scotland, highlighting yeah. back your whole where's Robin Hood in the first in the England section. Yeah, go figure. I do like that there's this thing called Wallace's Walk, which is a secret network of Highland trods. I like that mm-hmm. being a thing. Oh, and then the sidebar, um, I think there was some kind of error here because suddenly the 69, aka the Accordance War, kind of pops up in the middle of the 1700s. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, whoops. Transparency's out of order. There we go. That's. I mean, it yeah. is a knocker setting it up, so something got it. And there's also a note like, 1780 to 1790, the village of Merid is destroyed. Proto-Verbena driven north and found the wives of the wood. I'm pretty sure the Verbena were already a thing by 1780. There was no proto about them. Anyway. Yeah. You can also, like, then they talk about the first prime minister, British prime minister, which... Right. Uh, you can argue if that was actually, if it's accurate, but actually... Well, the, I mean, prime minister kind of grew into a position slowly around that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. But why saying like it's this date? It's just like <laughs> I think that's when is it? I forget who it was. Was it Pitt the Elder who was considered the first? No, not uh, Robert Warp Walpole. That's it. And that was when he took office. First Lord of the Treasury. Mm. There's not much here about the Highland clearances or kind of the long-running effects of the Jacobite Rebellion, but they're at least mentioned, which is good. And then. Mm-hmm. We again get our first reference. Really, this this whole chapter, it's very mage light in contrast with the England one. Mm-hmm. Whereas the England chapter, you had entire stretches that were all mages. Here, there's very few. There's very little mage stuff. Well, well the iron grip of the technocracy, though. Right. Well, and then with the exception of like when the technocracy shows up, particularly in the 1760s. So the rise of banality with the beginning of industrialization. I do like the idea of Adam Smith as a syndicate technocrat. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's also the... I've heard, all, not all of Scotland, but a lot of Scotland, it experienced things... Like, it had the same industrial revolution sort of thing, but it was in, like, in a different place culturally than a lot of England was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Medieval Scotland, a lot of it did not look like what you'd think of with, like, farms and that type of the structure. Well, there was there was no flatland to farm. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it's kind of like going from like a, I don't want to like overgeneralize, but it's not wasn't really an agrarian society. Right, 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 right. And then suddenly you get like, hey, now you're living in a city. Yeah, the timeline here kind of goes from the 1760s to the 1960s in the space of about a paragraph, and. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. It feels too pat to me to just say, then the technocracy came in and there was banality and everything industrialized. And that brings us into the modern era. We at least have a sidebar that gives us a little bit more structure, but yeah, that's a, that's a very, that is an interesting period in Scotland. And it like, yeah, there are things very relevant to change. There's the whole Scottish nationalism movement, like in that period arising and all kinds of romance, romantic art and like, yeah. And, and, Poets and authors, Robbie Burns and all of that. Yeah, there's a lot. And they just, like, that also is foundational to changeling a lot of it. Mm-hmm. 
There's a mention of David Livingston being a void engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and another reference to the Depression starting in 1920. Yeah, where do they get that from? <laughs> At the top of page 82, I think, is the clearest example of why this sort of structure of having the long stretch of text being narrated without any section headers, but still corresponding to the sidebars. It says, you must wonder at mages who aim so high, yet end up dispersing their own people across the world and filling their lands with sheep. Then the next paragraph, aye, aye, that was a grand theft. It was a grand and dramatic and momentous and stupendous gesture of nose thumbing at the Londoners. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Unless you remember that on the previous page, <laughs> At the end of one of the timeline sidebars, there's a random reference to the Scottish National Party stealing the Stone of Scone from Westminster Abbey in 1950. Yeah, but you still don't know which one of those it's referencing. He's talking about the sheep thing, like what's right? Yeah, so so it's just it's very clunkily put together, and there's lots of stuff skipped over and other stuff that they just go on for a really long time. Yeah. Um, there's very little about the actual impact of the resurgence in Scotland. For England, we got the note that, oh, it wasn't nearly as bloody as in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But here there seems to be this suggestion, and this is kind of repeated later on, that it never really finished. There was kind of a ceasefire, but that the various she who took over realms of Scotland are still kind of jockeying for position. Mm -hmm. Also, mention of High King David with Britain joining the European community. Yeah, there's some copy-paste going on here. But it's also a weird one to have, I think. <laughs> yeah. Particularly since Scotland doesn't recognize him as High King. And and having him in the same entry. Yeah. When they don't even have a definite year. They're just made of two different years. Anyway. No, they do have the Stone of Scone being returned. It's the last side okay. entry. I guess it had just happened. Yeah, because 1996. And then it ends with the hungover and progressively getting drunker knocker narrator descending into this like slurred speech rant which okay i guess it has flavor but it's kind of clunky when you're trying to explain the history yeah. of a setting i don't know it would have been nice to have a scott if we could have had a scottish person yeah. <laughs> if we didn't work out that way be like how insulting is this this seems pretty uh pretty bad but yeah there's a point at which unreliable narrator veers into like not a great choice at all <laughs> Yeah. And that's our history chapter. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean there's I feel like there's a lot left out. I I don't think I would feel equipped to run a Scotland game on the basis of this or like, you know, having the background necessary. It's mm -hmm. also short. Um it's only 11 pages and that's counting art and everything. I believe the England one was at least a little bit longer. And, um, you know, with all the art and with all the tangents and with all the side stories and with all the sidebars, it's really not a lot of actual information. Yeah, I guess it makes it easier for us, but yeah. it's not great as a book. That being said, as we move ahead, I think the next chapter is my favorite chapter in the entire book. Oh. A lot of the information that we should have gotten in chapter four is buried here in chapter five, i.e., actual setting information with actual context and historical background for why it matters so yeah that's great yeah i thought you would have had a but it starts start off on the second page of the, okay we'll get into it but i thought there was something that might have gotten your hackles up from a linguistic sense but oh well there is that yes we will get to that overall chapter five is <laughs> yes although it starts with two of the weirdest trolls i've ever seen in changeling art I'm not sure what 
kith they're supposed to be. That mysterious unknown Scottish kith, perhaps. Yeah, I'm like, is that a pretty red cap and a green she, or is that an ugly green she, or is that like a very beefy slua <laughs> and a pretty red cap? Like, I'm, I'm... <laughs> I was thinking hornless troll. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe that's just a mortal on the left. I think that's a Romulan. That's my only conclusion. The one on the right. I mean, Star Trek and Changeling. Um, mm-hmm. So chapter five, Caledonia, Land of Hope and Betrayal. On the first page, in the span of like four paragraphs, we get basically all the important information about the various waves of people that have come to Scotland over the centuries. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful. That's good to know. It's like, oh, okay, there was a Norse presence. Now you know. Yeah, so you skip the last chapter. Skip chapter four, just read chapter that. Basically, you can. (laughs) And there were, there's descriptions here of kind of like the Scottish fae cultural ethos, which is incredibly helpful, you know? So there's little Mm -hmm. tidbits. I drew out a couple quotes here, which I liked. So first, the fae of Scotland believe that the preservation of their culture is worth dying for, but their actions to preserve it must not invite banality. I imagine them kind of upholding the escheat really, really firmly, really severely, mm-hmm. but finding all of these very careful ways to dance around it, you know? Well, that's also a statement in Changeling that isn't made enough. And mage, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, the Like, oh, the traditions. Why is the one trying to keep some sort of traditional thing the one that's static? And, right. Yeah. Like from a mage perspective, it's like stasis are the ones who want to change everything. Yeah, and and from cha- I mean changeling, it's like oh yeah, we're big on tradition for tradition's sake, as opposed to those banal people. So. Right. Well, and then so another quote is they have the note: Wilders believe that fighting solely against change and time will doom the Fey. So there's this suggestion mm-hmm. that it's sort of seeming dependent, which mm. your mileage may vary. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite. Whether or not you think it's accurate, it's kind of a beautiful statement. Scottish history invites the theme of might-have-beens and could-have-beens. I'm like, mm. mm-hmm. I think that probably sums up a lot of the outlook that you would that you would want in a game if you were trying to, you know. I can't speak to mm-hmm. its accuracy, but I like it. Yeah, that's sort of, yeah, again, from my limited understanding. But... Mm-hmm. Then we get a pronunciation guide. <laughs> I, I'm just... do, you, do you want to start your what it's of? what they call it well so i'm glad that they distinguish scots from scots gaelic which are two different languages and then they have scottish lexicon you know so scottish english Mm -hmm. vocabulary words Mm -hmm. and i'm glad that they distinguish that but like oh man (laughs) i mean i if you want to learn scottish gaelic this will do you few to no favors but yeah okay well i well, yeah, the thing that was that's getting me up was the, I mean, there's an argument if Scots is a language or if Scots is a dialect of English. Either way, it's a distinct way of having a language that is different from the mainstream English spoken in Scotland, like the most more common way of speaking English in Scotland. The, when you're talking about Scots, you're talking about some, anyway, yeah. it's a specific dialect or language. Do you know the quote by the Yiddish linguist Max Weinreich? Uh, uh, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Oh, I know that one. I just didn't know who made that one. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the yes, Scots is a language. Well, I know I know there are Scots speakers who even say it's not a language. So it's like I don't oh, want to weigh into that, but it's not just 
the word Scots does not refer to how people in Edinburgh or whatever, you're just talking to people. Most people there are not speaking Scots. Yeah. We do also get changeling lexicon, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. And I like that they use Caledonia, meaning like the old Latin term for Scottish people, for the Scottish tribes, to basically mean fae and prodigals, all supernatural beings from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And there is the distinction between clan, which is the basic unit of Scottish fae society during the interregnum, and tua, which roughly translates into tribe, but unlike clan, refers to geographical areas, not merely political or familial relationships. The fae of Scotland use it synonymously with duchy. So, mm-hmm. Which makes me just think, like, politically, like, you know how they talk about how a game like Werewolf the Apocalypse will have, like, two axes, and, like, uh, Chronicles of Darkness has, like, three axes? This is making me think, like, Changeling in Scotland has, like, five axes of, like, what's your kith, your clan, your tribe, your... Uh, yeah. your... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and later they talk about the sort of recitation of lineage as an important thread. And and I like that a lot. It's something that is well represented in oral cultures, but has kind of fallen out from a lot of contemporary literate cultures. And so, you know, it's cool to see connection to that. Anyway, mm-hmm. we get some general geographic information about the different regions of Scotland the southern uplands, which are the hill country at the border with England, the central belt, which is the lowlands where most of the population lives in the cities, and the famous highlands, plus the islands off the coast, like the Hebrides, the Orkneys, and the Shetlands. Mm -hmm. And once again, among changeling things, you have a kingdom with no high king, Mm -hmm. and then there's multiple kings. (laughs) First, First seen in Ireland, then seen in England, now seen in Scotland. Would Caledonia actually be a kingdom, or is it... I don't know. Oh, yeah. Maybe not calling it a kingdom. Well, because the, the lords of the Tua, they don't refer to their... They don't refer to themselves as kings, right? They're mm-hmm. lords such and such, or dukes such and such. So I don't know. Yeah. I guess... I was calling it Scotland. <laughs> I guess Delriada is a kingdom. But, well, we'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. Oh, actually, there is a sidebar on page 89 changeling politics where it says mm-hmm. caledonia is a broken country the 69 war of ivy isn't over the she quickly fell to fighting amongst themselves no high king arose in caledonia and after eight years of struggle the royals of scotland signed the caledonian compact so they have an armistice basically slash mutual mm-hmm. defense pact if the english fey invade um yep but none of them and king ross of Dalriada is trying to take over but none of them has been accepted as the high king over all the others yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that it makes uh, Scotland should be united among the Kiths. I'm just saying it's funny that this is like the third such place. Yeah, we also have a sidebar on mage politics <laughs> for what that's worth. Yeah. This is this is what I was talking about, where it has like the different conventions and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The celestial chorus and the verbena are the two traditions that are strongest, but there's also a hermetic presence, which works because you'd have the verbena as kind of like the mm-hmm. old Celtic, old ways folks. There is a very strong mm-hmm. church history and presence in Scotland. So that's the chorus. And there's also a strong ancient universities kind of thing going on, which they talk about here. So that's a hermetic connection. But it's just interesting how the England section seemed very geared around. Look at how full England is of both changelings and mages. And here's all the ways that they work together and compete with each other. And then the Scotland section is like, 
changelings are hard put upon. There's not many mages and most of them are technocrats. <laughs> yep. It's a very different feel. But we get information about politics and transportation, again, all of which has probably shifted in the last 25 years. One of the things this book is like, oh, this is so steeped in tradition and not much change and stuff. But if you want to talk, like, compare the U.S. politically and Britain politically. Must we? Since this book came out, there's been a lot more changes politically Mm -hmm. of all kinds, good and bad. And you can figure out for yourselves which ones you think are which, but, like... Much more than U.S. had. That's just kind of funny. That yeah, go figure. <laughs> um, I do really, really enjoy the list of major trods. That's really helpful. I think. Mm-hmm. Did you, Did you draw on the festivals and holidays for your book? Book of oh, Days, absolutely. Which I absolutely. If you want to listen to that episode, listeners, it's a uh, one of the previous in the feed or Nordor website. <laughs> Three episodes back, I think. But yeah, absolutely. I think all of these made an appearance with the exception of the riding of the marches, because when I did my research, it was too, there's too many individual ridings of the marches that happen all across the border throughout the summer. So I couldn't like find a specific date. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the Beltane stuff just kind of got folded in with the rest of the Beltane stuff. Yeah. Beltane's big. So yeah. And Gyro Knight, I don't know if it's Gyro Knight, Gyro Knight, Gyro Knight, whatever. The timing of it is so contentious. Some sources said, oh, it's always in February. Some sources say it's always in April. Some say it's related to Easter. So yeah, that one was tough to place. But I, I definitely read that differently. I thought it was like a Greek-themed kebab night or something. <laughs> sure. Now it's ogre dress-up night. Or maybe not even dress-up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, all of this, I would say, is useful to some degree. And then after the festivals, we get, this is where the so it's the Slonya, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. is the recitation of lineage. But one of the other really helpful pieces is a full, well, maybe not full, an extensive list of superstitions and folklore related to the Fae, which I have been looking at for the latest Storytellers Vault project that I'm working on. It's basically, for any mage players, a mythic threads system for changeling, Scottish changelings in particular. It's a really cool section to have here to kind of give setting information really useful for Mm -hmm. creating flavor yeah did you have any any favorite superstition pieces that are listed here well the one that like stuck out for me was just another name confusion with bannock Mm -hmm. but no i like actually that one yeah but just confusion with the indigenous fry bread thing called bannock in yeah north america but anyway yeah same thing i liked clach and champion Stone of the Lyre, which are standing stones that produce musical notes when struck. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. I wish they had the tradition of the first foot or the qualta, where you're like, if you're the first visitor on New Year's Day, there's like a ritual. You bring certain gifts and you say a ritual phrase and you bring good luck to the household. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then there's a sidebar about haggis and stuff. But like these, however many pages this is, uh, eight pages? But I really like the note how, you know, related to that, we have to keep our traditions alive. These are some of the traditions that the Fae of Scotland actively try to keep the memory of going because it is still connections to the dreaming. One of the things that we kind of talked about planning for this recording was the role of folklore and the importance of folklore in enriching a setting. And I think that this is kind of a prime example of how that can function. It's not necessarily 
turning every myth into a new splat or creating arts out of whatever powers different fairies use within the stories and stuff. It's just kind of saying, hey, here are these little connections that everybody who's part of this culture would be like vaguely familiar Mm -hmm. with. And I think that that's the kind of thing which you don't necessarily think about when you're trying to do something in another setting. So it's helpful. And I think it's also because in Changeling the Dreaming, like if we talk about what places have the most sort of the folklore played the most into Changeling, Scotland's right up there. Yeah, like with absolutely. Probably Ireland and Wales, I'd say, are the three big, big ones. But Yeah. And then we get into the actual political geography. Mm-hmm. So we have kind of one narrator who's giving little epigraphs, which is Anguish McSporin and his Red Caps Diary. And then it changes about halfway through to Uninchon, who's a, she's a mage. She's specifically not a verbena and not an ecstatic. She's a bard. And so she kind of takes Mm. over in the second half of the chapter and they kind of frame either with anecdotes or just little quotations, the different kingdoms and the different regions throughout Caledonia, starting with Dabariada, which is actually a historical kingdom. So, Or are any of them not? Well, I mean, like... I don't know if, like, the Kingdom of Alba, for example, I think there was a historical one. I don't know that it existed in the same place. Mm-hmm. Kingdom of the Three Hills, I don't think, has ever been an actual thing. I don't know. So Dalriada is the most powerful kingdom in Caledonia because its population dwarves the other two kingdoms. And it has the big cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow. So the mm-hmm. King Ross desperately wants to rule over the entirety of Scotland. And even though he's quadrupled the size of his kingdom, uh, he's still not quite there. Everyone schemes in Dalariata, apparently. But it's broken into these three to us, uh, beginning with Iron, which is the southwestern part of Scotland and includes Glasgow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How did you feel about these location write-ups? They're okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> They're uneven. They could be worse. Yeah. I think I like them, though. They, they suffer a little bit from the same issue that I had with London in the England section, where the specific places they choose to reference, for the most part, they are changeling or mage-specific locations. They're not like sites that tourists go to. Yeah, There's not really enough to use them? Yeah. Either. But at least the write-ups kind of give you a little bit. So like the Glasgow write-up, for example, gives you a little bit of history, talks a little bit about the rich versus poor distribution names a few parks and squares and stuff, names a few people and where they live. So at least the mm-hmm. overview is like, you know, something to go on. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, I wonder if that's still accurate today. Right. It was accurate then. The specific sites that we get in Glasgow include Tinker's Dam, a grump knocker's freehold where she makes music machines, the Shadows Market where the unsealy wheel and deal and Terminus West, which is like an everything shop owned by a hollow one. So Mm -hmm. right on. I do wonder with these kind of things, like, is it like somebody went to Scotland? Yeah. And like, they're like, huh, that place would make a new, like I've done that in Chronicles. Like I'm like, this game set here. I'm like, oh, there's a spooky little place, house there. I'm going to make it something or something. I suspect it might be a mix of that. Plus I made this location for a game that I ran and I'm going to include it in a book. Mm Mm-hmm whether it's Scottish or no. But that's basically it for the Tour of Iron. Like, we get Glasgow, and that's it. 
Yeah, so it was like, this is the big, powerful place. Let's give it yeah. And then similarly, the Tua of Dew, which is on the eastern coast, is Edinburgh and doesn't give you any other information, even though it apparently extends from Falkirk and Quothcon in the west to the Firth of Forth and along the south coast to the Morefoot Hills. We're just going to get Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's how people who live there feel about everyone. Probably, yeah. about it, though. And there's less information about Edinburgh than Glasgow, but we have, again, a few sites. We have the Salon de Flora, which is a flower boutique run by the Boggan Duchess, which I think I like a little bit better than the one we had in Georgia in Freeholds and Freeholds in Glens. But yeah. Then there's Covenant House, which is a mage chantry. Golach's Cayley, which is a satyr pub. And the Edinburgh International Festival and Fringe Festival, which I've always wanted to go to, but... Someday. There's a lot of places. It's true. Then there's an entire page on the Old Covenant, which I didn't really understand why this was here. (laughs) They needed mage stuff. Yeah. I mean, a brief summary, I guess. It's an alliance between the Hermetics of Ex Miscellanea and the Wick, the Proto-Verbena, that was put together in the 1300s by... I can't say his name without like giggling and thinking of The Office, but Michael Scott... I do like how he has arcane seven or eight. So people sometimes just kind of forget that he exists for weeks at a time uh, before reality sort of kicks him out altogether. But there's references to things like, oh, they started a project to map out the shallowings throughout the highlands. And it's like, why don't, why don't I have more information about the shallowings scattered throughout the highlands? That's awesome. Give me that. Let me use that. Yeah. At least a few paragraphs. Yeah. Then the hallows a secret society within House Islandnet that tracks down artifacts from the times before the Shattering. Them, I could actually see using in a game. I could see playing a character who's part of that organization or associated with them, or sent on missions mm-hmm. by them. Do we ever get those showing up again? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that it, should have been like C20 Player's Guide or something. I don't recall them being in Book of Houses, but that might be where they are as well. And then lastly, the Tua of Shadows, which is the Isle of Sky in the Hebrides. And we get kind of a vignette here, a background story. When King Ross was looking to conquer them, he tried to make pacts with the commoner lairds, which failed because they bombed his knights. So he freaked out and said he would knight and give title to any she who could subdue the isles. And there were ambushes and battles and challenges. And then suddenly there was this giant gray-haired Skaha warrior named Bethag who came out and like challenged everyone to one-on-one combat until she had beaten everybody and the commoners were like we love you and then she said surprise I'm going to go talk to King Ross and take over this entire region Mm. so she's kind of like I don't know how many listeners will know Game of Thrones but she's sort of like a gray-haired Brienne of Tarth who then became a she lackey and that to me is compelling I mean for better or for worse I think she's a great character and then we have Oninshan. The Saibaran Oninshan leads into talking about the Bardic College. So full disclosure, the first thing that I ever wrote on Storyteller Vault was a write-up of a craft called the Tail Singers, and they were very directly inspired by this group. But basically they're bards. Some ecstatics, some verbena, some fae who hang out. Yeah, I like the, Well, there's some... Isn't there some Garu in them too? Yeah, there's also Fiona in there. <laughs> Yeah, that's just all, like I like the what more cross game 
groups yeah. like that where it's not like everybody it's just like a little side thing but yeah again i could see this being useful in a game or having characters part of or associated with this group mm-hmm. and then you just have like one mortal that has no idea what's going right. on just <laughs> having fun Maud, the secretary yep custos Maud. there's notes about the fairy flag of clan mcleod and the kalanish standing stones i almost feel as though there's a lot more with the hebrides that could be explored here but mm-hmm. i guess space is always a consideration then we move on to the kingdom of alba in the lowlands and the eastern slopes of the highlands including inverness perth dundee and aberdeen ruled by king nile who i think is the only she possibly the only changeling possibly the only like supernatural character in the world of darkness who stated to have had cancer hmm so i think i thought i remembered someone else who did but yes it's not common certainly no his Dougal ban is that he has lost part of his throat and jaw, so his knocker engineers invented a treasure called the Collar of Command that gives him the power of speech. Mm-hmm. It just kind of makes me think about Black Bolt from Marvel Comics. But... Well, if it wasn't a Dougal ban, it's like that always gets to the funny question of like, what happens when you have a freehold access to a freehold and various arts and stuff with that type of character? So Yeah. So the sites in the Kingdom of Alba include the Sterling Institute for Folklore Quantification, which is a Dantean stronghold. And the sort of interesting connection here is that the Dantean in charge, Dr. Callum Erskine, is the mortal brother of King Ross of Dalriada. So the implication, I think, here is that Dr. Erskine could be the High King, but has fallen to banality. So, and there's mm-hmm. like references to Tua Glasgow, the Baron Pool of Scotland, in the same way that we had the Albion Well for England. This is the Enchanted Well of Scotland, which has dried up. So, there are suggestions that the land will only be whole again when the pool is refilled, which can only be done by the High King, which is probably the Stauntain. So, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's like a tragic drama. Well, that fits into that theme for Scotland that they had. Yeah. Could have been. Some... Yeah. So. There's an interesting story waiting to unfold there. Mm-hmm. Then there's the Tua of Kronos, which I love, and I wish that there was more about. But it's a powerful seer of Kronos and his fey wife managed to hide a pre-shattering site from the ravages of time and banality. So it's like this hidden little fairy mound somewhere in the wilderness. Wait, is it just like Brigadoon? Basically, yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Then there's Colcross Abbey and Glam's Castle, which I think is the only Macbeth reference that we get. I'm a little disappointed mm. about that. Yeah. There's Largo Law, which is a knoll in Fife, and the stone palace that houses the Stone of Scone. Honestly, these got like less interesting as I went through them, these sites here. Mm-hmm. And then there's a brief note about Aberdeen where it says knockers make up a large percentage of the Fae in this area and the Shi are dominated by House Dougal. So it's a very crafty corner of Scotland. There's a note about the Contrivancy, which is like, uh, it's basically knocker R&D. <laughs> yeah. Slash Dougal R&D. Yeah, this is a thought. Okay. Wait, wait which Fife is this? Uh, does this have St. Andrews in it? Like the university, you mean, right? Yeah. It's mentioned... I think it would be located in that kingdom. Yeah, that's just, I don't know, one of my connections, one of my things on Scotland, an obscure programming language I really like that's developed by 
a professor at the University of St. Andrews. Nice. <laughs> Named after a dragon from an obscure Welsh cartoon series. Anyway. But yes, that would be the same Fife. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's also the note uh, at the start of the Kingdom of Alba. Where is it? Where is it? Page 101. Most of the Shi of Caledonia regard King Nile of Alba as the only ruler who could seriously challenge Ross for High King. He's tough and he has, quote, hundreds of knockers working for him. Now, mm-hmm. the population of Scotland is, I don't know, 5 million, 6 million, something like that. And the mm-hmm. Kingdom of Alba would presumably be a fraction of that. So if there are hundreds of knockers in that little corner, I mean, it's dwarf, probably not natural. It's probably not like every place has like, it's probably a lot of knockers who are there. Yeah, but still, naturally. still though. Yeah. That's a lot of knockers. Well, I mean, we can, there's the question of the population, the population in Changeling. Yes. For any of it to make sense has to be huge compared to say the numbers we get for vampire. There's yeah. no way around it. So. Especially since most changelings are only supposed to be active for a few years. Right. It gets well, kind of... Just a setting note. Yep. Anyway, the last of the proper kingdoms that we get is the Kingdom of the Three Hills, which I think we get the least about, because it's just kind of the borderlands with England. But there's kind of an extensive opening vignette that demonstrates how its queen, Glynis, is extremely sorceress and mysterious. And I'm always a fan of mysterious sorceress queens. So... Mm-hmm. The opening vignette also includes the line, their clothes were right out of Brian Froud's wet dreams. I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> um, anyway, we have Dryberg Abbey, which is a chorister chantry with boring nuns, except then they have a flamboyant Jordanian merchant mage. He's awkwardly presented here, and it only gets worse in his write-up in the next chapter, but there he is. Closeburn Castle, which has a curse related to swans. Colzane Castle. Lots of castles. Lots of castles up here. Which, you know, that's historically makes sense. Yeah, that's one of the things people go to to Scotland for is to see castles. So. We have the homeland of True Thomas and a reference to the Ballad of Lord Solis and other places. Again, like I get less and less interested in these as each one kind of comes up. But yeah, so those are the kingdoms proper. And then there's the Cree, the untamed lands. So here we get the highlands and the Trossachs and the outer isles. I, I feel like that should have been, I don't know, in Changeling specifically, that should be like Changeling kingdoms or something. That seems like the kind of place Changeling should do well at. I think they do. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything saying that they don't do well. It's just that they're not formally yeah. incorporated into the kingdom kingdoms. Oh, okay, yeah. They're clans with their own little corners of craggy up the she just didn't manage to take over there yeah 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 and there's fiana up there and there's ecstatic pipers and the sidebar here on the highland clearances is tremendously helpful and informative compared with what we get in the history chapter this goes a long way to kind of giving the background especially when it talks about like the verbena hoping the choristers would help them out and the choristers instead seeing it as an opportunity to get rid of those dirty pagans mm-hmm. things like that then there's like a weird little piece on the wives of the wood, and I'm still not entirely sure what's going on here. <laughs> it's like, it's a coven of Verbena, and they kind of fled from the Inquisition, and they found this secret grove, which I'm not sure if they're making love to a demonic tree for self-preservation purposes, I think. That's kind of what I'm taking away from this. 
But like that's it says the wives guard a dark secret, something they cherish, yet their efforts to save the Freyvetter forest are motivated as much by concern for the locals as for their beloved wood. And like that doesn't tell me anything. And then later, a tree, a man, a demon, his roots reached down into the wick of life. I touched his warm bark and it softened. I gave myself to it, and for a time we were whole. It turns out it's just it's just a gilly do with uh, who's a sinner son? I guess your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> My instinct is that it's something kind of like the Wukong, where it's a demon lord who's taking advantage of people in desperate situations to form a lasting pact. Mm -hmm. But to my knowledge, they don't come up anywhere else in the canon, so... Mm -hmm. Mm. I guess that's a mage question we could ask. If only we knew someone who knew a lot about mage. We shall think on this. Then there's another vignette on the opposite page about another mage named Ash and her encounter with the brood of the Fachen, which are a bunch of redcaps that go around worshipping a cyclops and eating people. Something I do like in the mage sections here, because Ash is a bard and a musician, at one point she references restoring the beat of time, with capital B and capital T, and that suggests the time sphere, but the fact that she doesn't just say like, oh, I used time three. It's that restoring Mm -hmm. the beat of time. And there's another piece, I think in the, yeah, in the Wives of the Wood sidebar, I stretched out with the eye of life. So it's not using life one to sense life nearby, it's using the eye of life. I really liked that phrasing. We then have Glenada Distillery, which, so it's a freehold, but also a, a Scotch whiskey making concern. Says a wo- oh, she's just a woman of gigantic proportions, not supposed to be a troll or something. My assumption is like troll kinane or whatever. Okay. Maybe she is a troll. I don't know. It's unclear. Maybe she's just very tall. Yeah. Then the Conan River, which has Kelpies. Glencoe. Interestingly, so Glencoe references, this is the site of the infamous and treacherous massacre of the McDonald's by the Campbells. The massacre occurred because the McDonald's chief would not swear loyalty to William III of England. So there was this infamous murder situation. But it directly informed a scene in Game of Thrones, mm. which I don't know. Should I should I do a spoiler warning and just say? What? <laughs> sure. Spoiler warning for Game of Thrones: it inspired the Red Wedding, or it was one of the two things that was a main inspiration for the Red Wedding. That idea of inviting your rivals to dinner and then murdering them in their sleep, mm-hmm. and then very little on Loch Ness. But there it is. I love the Loch Lads, who are three puka that live in the lake and pretend to be the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Like, I wish they had write-ups in the character section and we had more information about them. So then we get the Craggy Trossachs, which are kind of the flashpoint for a lot of the political tensions in Caledonia, because that's where all of the kingdoms kind of meet. And there's also these wildernesses there where the Yilidu hang out. So that's something. And I guess they're technically part of the Highlands, but they feel like their own thing Mm -hmm. with their own stories. And then the Isles, which are troll territory. Well, because it's got like Norse people. So they have to all be trolls. Yeah. And there is a sidebar that specifically says all the fairies of the Shetlands were traditionally identified as trolls. (laughs) But there's also Selkies up there and they have their own... Mm -hmm. They talk about the Shetlands, they really don't say much about the Orkneys, but in both cases, they kind of have their own culture, and 
it would be nice to see a little bit more about them. Same with the Hebrides, mm -hmm. you know, but there's only so much room. They do mention that uh, Asa or Asa is the most powerful troll in the Orkneys and Shetlands, and she controls a huge number of troll thanes. So they have Jarls and thanes here, which I think we saw in Kithbook Trolls. Yeah, it's an older term. Yeah. yeah. The Norse words. I wonder, I wonder if they now have House Aeson running around there or something. Mm, yeah, yeah. Or at least trying to retake them. Yeah. Certainly in the Faroe Islands, which are even further out. Yeah. But that's not part of the United Kingdom. Nope. And that's about it. Yeah. Oh, I also want to... Uh, there's a reference to the Dwarfy Stain, which is this block of sandstone hollowed out and carved into a bed with pillows. Fae legend has it that an ogre king and queen of the isles were deposed for their barbarity and locked in the stone. Food was dropped through the holes and eventually they went mad and killed each other. But a troll who spends a day and a night lying on the bed gets the strength of the ogre king and all of his victims. And I wish that there were more just kind of enchanted places with substantive effects like that. You know, mm -hmm. it's like having a treasure, except it's a place with a story and undefined mechanics that the storyteller can work with. And I think that that's mm -hmm. kind of like next tier setting fodder for a storyteller. So I yep. wish there was more of that, because a lot of these write-ups are just kind of like stories, flavorful, but not really useful. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's the chapter. Yeah, I thought this was, I think as a whole, maybe better than the England one. Yeah, I agree. Like in terms of... Like, those first eight pages are solid setting material. And then yeah. even the write-ups that I kind of was getting bored with as I read through them here, they're not bad. They're just like, I don't know how I would use them. I'm sure other people could probably come up with yeah. ways that they might. And it's like, if I was setting a game there, I'd probably make use of it, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't necessarily... They left out things they should have brought in, and but uh, like you said, there's always space issues. Yeah. So then... A very violent picture. Yeah, we get a, a full-on neck slash to open chapter six. Mm -hmm. Red and black colors. Yeah. It is a very arresting picture. So to open chapter six, we have this little intro paragraph that's like, go Scottish people. Don't don't play up with Scot saying all Scottish people are drunk. Right. And knockers who can't keep their story straight when they're giving a lecture. Yep. And there's information about the clans and some of their symbology. I think people, at least in the US, often know about tartans. And they, I think non-Scottish Americans know that like, oh, tartans, the different tartans signify different clans. I think that's like common enough knowledge. But not a lot mm -hmm. of people outside of people, you know, really invested in their Scottish heritage know about the family slogans with the badges. And especially the fact that mm -hmm. the slogans are kind of like these really elaborate Latin mottos, which is not something one generally yeah. associates with like Highland kilt wearing, you know. Yeah. But when you get, when you get to the point of when this was established, Latin yeah, yeah, of had course. been very common for a very long time. For sure. But it doesn't play into the romantic, like the, the story of it, I guess, from yeah. an American perspective. Or Canadian, it's the same in that regard. Maybe in Nova Scotia. I still, okay. It's like, I know the name Ross works. I know it fits. And I mean, we do have King David and Concordia and stuff, but it's just like, it just feels like a King Bob. <laughs> like, Well, and Ross is his fey name as well, because his mortal name is Russell Erskine. Yeah. So King Russell and then Ross is his mortal <laughs> name would almost make more, would hey, sound better. Hey, Russ. Russ. Yeah. 
I do want to actually, before we get into the specific characters, I want to just point out the notes for like overall population. So they mentioned historically the most populous kith in Scotland were the Shi, Redcaps, Boggins, and Knockers. Makes sense because the mm-hmm. lore is really strong around all of those there. Of course, some Slua lived in the labyrinths beneath the various mountain ranges. I read that and I think, weren't the Slua all still in Eastern Europe at this point? Different book. It's just, I mean, Slua is not even a Russian word. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do like also the note, satyrs were often mistaken for the devil in ancient Scotland and their numbers are still few. Thereby hangs a tale. Well, there also gets weird. You're like, what does that have to do with today? Like, do satyrs not show? Anyway. Well, I can imagine Gee. that satyrs not from Scotland would have superstitions even after all this time. That's like, oh, don't go to Scotland. Oh, okay. You know? That makes more sense. Not just satyrs aren't born there. Yeah. The satyr soul's like, oh, F this. I'm going to get reincarnated in some other country. Yep. One of these days we should talk about like changeling in Greece and like one of the regions called Arcadia and just. <laughs> That's just... I have thoughts on this. Yeah. <laughs> And there's notes about the Sealy and Unsealy politics. But, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yes. Shall we just briefly fire through these? Yeah, King Ross. He is the jerkiest of Gwydion. He's a good example of, like, the Sealy villain. Because he's very mm-hmm. power-hungry. He means to conquer all of Caledonia by whatever means necessary. But he's a Sealy Gwydion. So. Yep. We've had a few other ones that are good. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yet another. Yeah. And his sort of sexy slew of femme fatale spy mistress, Gruach. Mm-hmm. I kind of like her. It's nice to see an unsealy slew with appearance four just kind of slinking around the halls of power. Yeah, especially, well, my LARP history, there was a lot of people playing sexy slewas that more so than the books. Yeah. So then in the various Tuatha, mm-hmm. there's Duke Leiden of House Fiona, who rules over the Tua of Iron. And Lorna Barnes, owner of the Tinker's Dam, who I quite like. She's tone deaf, but she loves music, so she creates machines that make music. Mm-hmm. And Farhar, who runs the Shadows Market, or hangs out there. Yeah, and his, his picture falls into the same uh, common thing in Changeling art, where you're like, I don't think the horns quite work that way. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of brow accents. Mm-hmm. So then we have the Tua of Dew and Duchess Flora the Boggin, who I think might be the only Boggin Duchess. Yeah. And she apparently, in addition to being a florist, likes to hang out with the Toreador, who apparently love to discuss Descartes. Okay. This feels like a thing. It's like this this came up in a game and they're turning yeah. it into it. That, that's, that's where that had to have come from, I think. Either that or they did. I don't know if you ever played like MASH in grade school, where you would kind of make a notebook with like jobs and you make a list of 10 jobs and then houses and a list of 10 houses. And it was like divination. You would randomly determine. Yep your job in your house. And I feel like they kind of did that here with random character traits. They put them all in a hat yeah. and swirled them around and then said, okay, the Duchess is a Boggin and she is a florist and her best friends are Toreador vampires. <laughs> Something like that. Then there's the Tua of Shadow and Bethag, warlord of the Isles. I dig her as a character. Did, was this before or after we got official rules for Skahawk? After, because they were in Nobles the Shining Host. Okay. Not a lot. I mean, this was before Book of Lost Houses, which gave the extensive write-up, but I feel like this character kind of starts nudging them in that direction for later. 
like making them the mm-hmm. mysterious sorceress martial arts slash swords people. Yeah, but before they gave them something that gives Doe a run for its money. Right, exactly. Supernatural martial arts. Then we have the Bard at College and the Master Bard Alistair of House Fiona. And that's it for the Kingdom of Dalriada. Mm-hmm. We then get the Kingdom of Alba, the stronghold of the Knockers, ruled over by... Wait, a... his jaw looks oh. fine here. Or was that, the, was that the same one? I think his voice box is what got lost to cancer. So that oh, collar thing. Oh, okay. I thought I lost yeah. a piece of his jaw. Okay. I think he did, but he probably just got regular plastic surgery for that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Nile of House Dougal and Edward Buchanan, also known as Yon, who's the Yiladu graduate student of the Dantain Dr. Erskine. Yeah, that those don't last long, do they, in, around banality? Nope. And he's also dreaming about his former mentor being the High King, refilling the pool. Then in the kingdom of the Three Hills, we have Glynis, the Sorceress Queen. She's got some arts. Some of them are pretty good. I feel like she could be more powerful, but yeah. She doesn't fit the definition of sorceress or sorcerer or whatever that they give at least later. Yeah, yeah. Needing to have one art at five and one at four or whatever. But she has a Mm -hmm. secret glade where she can make Corp Krega, which are these little sort of effigy dolls made of clay. And she's also in love with King Ross. She she has lots of different little aspects to her character, which I like. Mm-hmm. You know, she also kind of feels like a put together set of pulled out traits. But it works, and that's. Yeah. <laughs> then in the Highlands, we have Shumas, the Boggan chieftain of Clan Wrath, which is a great, great name. I think he's also he might be one of the few changelings that's described as having children who are also changelings of the same kith. Mm-hmm. Like we get lots of kinane kind of mixed in, but I don't recall that. You know, I think we've had a she who had a she kid at some point, but okay, yeah, I don't recall. Might have been adoption. Yeah. Then there's information about the brood of the fucking. Oh yeah, okay. And so then here's the distillery. So Anker, the very large woman, is a kinane, mm. and they have three changeling children. Yep, including Colin of the Loch Lads. See, that's a family drama chronicle that I would want to see. A salmon puka? Yeah. I never thought of that before. Yeah. Why have I never seen a fish puka? (laughs) That's the Loch Lads. Yep. But yeah, I would love to see a sitcom with this distillery changeling family. That'd be great. We get like the one changeling television show is like a sitcom set in Scotland. (laughs) There is that French TV show about the family that runs like a weed dispensary. I imagine it would be along those lines. Anyway. Well, I mean, there is a, there is a TV show that's very changeling, but it's also kind of sitcom-y, but that's a whole other. It's a New Zealand show. Perhaps in our future episode on inspirational television media. Yes. So then for the Isles, we get Jarl Asa. Asa? I'm going to say, I'm going to say Asa. Oh, I'm just deferring to your pronunciation <laughs> on anything in this book. So we have Jarl Esa and the Storeworm, which is this large chimerical, I think it's a clockwork dragon it's mentioned at some point, but it lives in the water and just ruins everybody's day. But I like the note that in her mortal seeming, she is a forklift operator for a fish processing plant. I love the little sort of slice of life stuff mixed in with the wild fantasy. Like, okay, she's driving Mm -hmm. the forklift and then on her lunch break, she has to go out into the surf and battle this giant chimerical water serpent. That is very changeling, I guess. Yeah. She's also got those horns that are just kind of brown accents. Yeah, hers at least I can picture like a bit better in my head. It's still like questions about the shape of her head, but. Yeah. 
Then we get some mages. The tradition mages have been slow to react to the favorable changes in Scottish society, i.e. less technocratic. They are just beginning to reach out to each other after many years of hatred and distrust. The Verbena are suspicious of everybody. The Celestial Chorus has plenty of influence in the Church of Scotland. And that just, the Throat Mage, I know this is Changeling Podcast, but Throat Mage, what the Celestial Chorus represents is just so all over the place that like, because like when I think of Celestial Chorus, I do not think Church of Scotland. Like those are not, (laughs) anyway. Well, it's interesting. They do give a note here that the Kirk once sided with the Order of Reason. So I kind of like that at least in the Scottish context, the choristers do have this kind of dark mm-hmm. mark in their past to atone for Yeah, from the perspective of other traditions. But what I mean is there's two perspectives on the tradition. One is yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just Christian mages, and one is they're heretical mystic Christians. Well, right? the ones we get here are literally nuns. So <laughs> it's like... Yeah. yeah. Wait, does Church of Scotland have nuns? I don't know. I guess they have religious orders of different sorts. I guess she might be... Well, so, okay, so Sister Isabel is actually French and just moved to Scotland, so. Ah, okay. They're Calvinist Presbyterians. They would not have nuns, I don't think. But anyway. There's also extensive notes about the technocracy and the harbourages of Avalon kind of hiding out. The Old Covenant is made up of Euthanatos and Hermetics. Here's Michael Scott with his Arcane 7. And Spirit 6, so he's an Archmage. He sort of, to me, it's like, okay, he's an Order of Hermes, whatever, but he's like kind of Ali Betting vibes all through him. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. He's a problem solver and a forward thinker. But he's hardly ever on Earth because Earth can't abide him anymore. There's Farouk ibn Kamal, who is a really cringy, stereotypically described Jordanian chorister. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, oh, it just gets worse yeah. and worse. Like the basic idea works, but then, yeah. Randomly, his avatar is a fairy. Okay. <laughs> Wives of the woods. It's just, it's really just like every sentence gets worse. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm done. <laughs> yes, wives <laughs> of the wood. Oh. Eli, leader of the wives of the wood. And her daughter is Uninshin, the bard who refused to take over the coven, probably because she didn't want to have tree sex with a demon. I just keep thinking about the splinters. But... Mm. And that's it for the mages and indeed the Scotland section. Mm-hmm. I could see using a couple of these characters, but like the England section, there's very few of, like, there's there's a lot of named figures in the history and the setting section who don't have full write-ups in the character mm-hmm. section. And honestly, it seems like for a few of these, they chose the least interesting ones to include. Yeah. This, this whole book feels, on average, better done than the England book. Yeah. But maybe it just feels less in general i don't know if it's just because it's the second book but it's like less less grand less yeah i can agree with that i feel like the england section the characters were better the Mm -hmm. history section was not better but different (laughs) yeah and the setting was worse than the scottish one like the setting chapter of the scotland book i think is top notch yep So maybe the history section for the Wales book will be the best of the three. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. Yes. We shall, we shall see. Well, there's no, there's no heading chapters at all in the Wales section. This little preview, Mm. even in the sidebars. Oh dear. I I guess, I guess they gave up by day three of their tailcraft festival or whatever. (laughs) I don't understand how, 
how do you make a book like that? Like, it's one book. It's not like these are three different books published after each other. And then there was like editing. It was published as one book. Anyway. So shall we, should we also take the opportunity to talk about the Hirdu? Yes. Because this is the book in which they appear, though they are in the appendix. We thought it best to include them in the Scotland section, since their name is Scottish. I can say and have said extensive things about the Kith, but what are your thoughts about the Hirdu? I'm... Like, both from here and when they've shown up later, I I need to actually read your book on them, I think. Because it's a prime candidate for that. Because they feel like a bunch of collection of traits that I'm having trouble figuring out the through line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I kind of get what they're poking at and, like, the green man and all the other stuff there. Yeah, I get it. But, like, what they are, I don't know how to articulate it, but, like, most kith I can be, like... If I'm going, like, what kind of person is this? Is this person, like, this kith or this kith, right? Mm-hmm. I've never met anyone go, that person's definitely a guildie. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I think if I were to peg somebody as a guildu, it would be, like, an off-the-grid dweller who is very into, like, permaculture. <laughs> you know? So not like Well, I know a lot of people like that, though. That's the thing. Yeah, like not off the grid, off the grid, but but more more mystic than like a boggin would be, because I know people who fit that mold who are total mm-hmm. boggins. But a do I feel like it's almost like the Thoreau thing of kind of living in the wilderness to meditate and be in harmony with nature, rather than like I'm going to start a farmstead. Oh, okay. I, I know a lot of people that want to be that. There you go. I don't know if I know anybody that is. Okay. Yeah. The write-up here says they're farmers, reclusive artisans, game wardens, hermits, and fishermen. They avoid mm-hmm. cities and professions which would take them for, take them there for long periods of time. Which, you know, that fits. Yeah, and they don't tend to hang out probably at festivals or any social thing. Right or not. Okay. Yeah, I could see them at, like, a deep woods, unplanned rave. I think they'd be okay. Yeah. As long as everybody cleaned up after themselves. Mm-hmm. I think I know a few people who would fit this bill who live in like intentional communities in the wilderness and are very spiritual and you know Mm -hmm. one could have events around that one could have rituals for example yeah they're also very like a phase (laughs) fay yeah makes sense well and that was when so you know tooting my own horn a little bit when i put together the kith book The two main issues that I wanted to resolve first were nobody ever wants to play them because of their frailty. So, Mm -hmm. you know, making them into a more fleshed out, interesting kith that people would want to play, but then also their role within Fae society, like what purpose do they serve? And from my point of view, they're kind of the ones who best understand the cycle of reincarnation and adaptation to change because they have to. Mm -hmm. And so they're the experts on that for other Fae. And it's it's a very yeah. almost meta kind of concept. It's very internal to the game itself. So, mm-hmm. And I do think they're more playable in C20 now that banality isn't as nasty. Yeah, but they're, they're not fleshed out in C20 by any means. They have even mm-hmm. less description yeah. than they do here. Yeah. So not just the banality thing, but also to give them like a culture and approaches to face society and the courts and Sealy versus unsealy, like all of that doesn't really get investigated here. Even in the write-ups that we yeah. get, I mean, I think we only get two statted Kirudu in this book. One is Yoan, and then there's uh, Vaughn in the whale section. 
and mm-hmm. I don't know that either of them is really compelling. They're just kind of like stock characters. So. Did we get them in second edition at all? I know we got them in the LARP book, but... I don't believe so. Not with stats, at least. I don't know. I'd have to take another yeah. look. It may have been mef- reference, but I don't think we got the Kith write-up. I think it was just this in C20 in the LARP book. But anyway, they're, I think they're interesting for things like the whole process of gaining glamour from nature is not something that gets enough attention in the books. Mm-hmm. The fact that they have three different birthrights, you know, birthrights changing each seeming. There's all these little distinctive aspects to them, which I like. So I'm a fan. That being said, I've never actually played one. So yep. next time. Still would, yeah, have to figure out. Some Kith more than others are like, some Kith you're like, you can drop into almost any Chronicle and other Kith you're like. Yeah. especially or, These are not them. <laughs> no. They're not the puka of... No. Anyways. You should include a link to your storyteller. Well, I will do, yeah. Just to close out, there's a few recommended sources for Scotland here in the appendix as well, and it is so mid-90s. <laughs> it's like... Oh, we found some interesting web pages. Here they are. Yeah. I think it's funny there's no recommended sources for England in this section, just Wales and Scotland. I assume the initial batch are intended mm-hmm. to be the England ones, mm-hmm. even though they could easily apply to the entire British Isles. Yeah, it's like that England doesn't get its own devolved parliament. Right. Anyway. <laughs> I was trying to think, though, of um, media. So here, I mean, they list Rob Roy, Braveheart, and Train Spotting. And yeah all all three of those make sense but i was trying to think of like other media out there which convey a scottishness to them and actually i kind of had a hard time i mean there's outlander the tv series based on the diana gabaldon books which i think Mm -hmm. is actually pretty good i mean it's very meticulously researched so i think it's accurate historically to a greater degree but like films there's a loch ness film which I saw as a kid <laughs> with Ted Danson. What? Um, there's Train Spotting 2, but yeah, Highlander. Yeah, there's definitely like, yeah, there we go. That's perfect Scottish culture. Yeah, uh, yeah there's like, a, there's some like stuff I can think of that's like Scottish folklore in the Americas, but right, yeah. It's Changeling's one of them, but yeah. They do also, they have some music stuff and poetry stuff, but they just kind of say, Oh, find a local Celtic band and plan an evening around hearing some live music. I fully support that. Good luck finding an authentic Scottish band in your hometown. You know, <laughs> I guess you could. Well, it might be a bit easier where I am, but yeah. Yeah, well, certainly it depends. Actually, actually no, this is a very Irish area. If it's going to be, mm. you'd have to go to like the East Coast. Yeah, Irish, I would say, is is relatively easier i can think of a couple in my area who i could probably go dig up but it's not straightforward yeah if you go to nova scotia then you can get more but yeah i would like to give recommendations for two musical acts though one is unclon drama which is like a bagpipes kilts and taiko drums act Mm. so like those big chunky bass drums and i saw them at the pa renaissance fair one year and then also banal which is this group of elderly women that keep alive the tradition of the walking song. If you're not familiar with it, you can, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's essentially when processing walking, they call it the tweed cloth to make clothing. Traditionally, it was a process of sitting around this table and kind of rhythmically washing and beating the cloth against the table and passing it clockwise. And as they did that, they would sing. 
and the songs would gradually speed up as the, the working of the cloth sped up over the course of the afternoon or whatever. So Bonnell released an album that's like a 45-minute set of just those traditional songs all in a row, and they have a very distinctive kind of call-and-response sound. It's very cool. That's cool. More for the show notes. Does that wrap us up, I think? I think so. That's about all yeah. I think I can say about Scotland in one sitting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this is Changing the Podcast. Uh, you can find our website, changelingthepodcast.com. For now, at least, you can find us on Twitter, uh, at ChangelingCast. We're on Facebook as Changeling the Podcast. Go join our Discord. There's links to it on our website, changeling, at changelingthepodcast.com. Uh, and you can email us, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. And there's also a Patreon. Yeah, there's a Patreon for Changeling the Podcast. All links are provided in the show notes as well. Yes. So, once again, I've been Josh. I remain, as usual, Puka. And, uh... You may take our glamour, but you will never take our freedom. As we complete this, the second entry in our trilogy of episodes about Isle of the Mighty, it may seem as though we find the book somewhat lackluster. But while it has its flaws, there is idea fodder on every page. Just imagine making Chimerical Unicorn or Dragon Haggis, or a tartan voile that incorporates Octarine, Gru, Fantablack, and other semi-possible colors. The possibilities are endless. Meanwhile, we'll be over here thanking our podcast's patrons, Derek, Raz Caboose, Sandjaker, Sija, and Terry Robinson. We had thought about providing a full bagpipe set for this episode's outro, but realized that for those unschooled in the scaroling of the pipes, it might come across as less of a thanks and more of a punishment. If you'd like to get a shout-out at the end of our episodes, or possibly a future musical salute, check out www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast, where you can sign up to help us keep creating Changeling content. We'd also be grateful for a review on the podcast platform of your greatest listening convenience. Or heck, just tell your friends, family, and random strangers about our show. In any case, until next time, keep on dreaming. Cheerio.